All right, well, good morning, Gospel community. It's a privilege to be up here today, filling in for Bart. We are excited to uh, welcome them back next week. But in the meantime, we are continuing on with our series on the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Today we're looking at the salt and light passage. Um, when Bart asked me to preach uh, for this message, he identified what we we're going to look at. Originally, it was a lot longer until I started getting into it. And I told him, no, yeah, <laughs> we have more than enough to cover in these three short but powerful verses. So Matthew 5, 13 through 16, let's read that um, together. You silently me with you up here. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God, we pray and ask that together as we look at your word, that your spirit would fill us with truth and compel us to action, that we, by your power, by your grace, by your strength, may be the salt and light in the world today. Bart stole my thunder at the beginning last week when he talked about how this is building. So having gone through the Beatitudes last week, blessed are, and going through these things, uh, oftentimes we talked about a little bit in discussion group last week, this passage sometimes is chopped up into sermons, for better or worse, right? Today we're going to continue on with the series through the whole thing, looking at it as one complete arc, one coherent thought of everything that puts together. So living the Beatitudes out, like we talked about last week, mourning over sin, poor in spirit, recognizing we have nothing, gentle, meek, seeking, hungering, thirsting after righteousness. Doing these things inevitably leads us to what we're talking about today. The Beatitudes are in these ways a prerequisite. Daniel Aiken, whose commentary was helpful this week, Bart's been using as well, wrote about this passage in this way. He said, those who love and follow King Jesus are the only real salt that this world will ever taste and the only authentic light that it will ever see. We're going to build upon that. But the first thing that you notice when you look at verse 13 is you are. It's this declarative statement of fact. It's not dependent on you. It's not dependent on your innate abilities, your strength, your courage. No, Christ said you are. Now, the question is, who is he actually talking to? There's probably a very large crowd in front of him filled with people across the religious spectrum, right? All walks of Jewish life. When we look at this passage elsewhere in context of the other Gospels too, especially when Paul refers back to it, we'll see here, he's ultimately speaking to his true followers, the disciples. So you are here refers to them. Uh, Daniel Aiken wrote that there's five major functions of salt in this life. Okay, the first one we spent a lot of time there was purity and preservation, flavor, healing, and thirst creation. Now, salt was incredibly valuable in ancient times. So oftentimes we can interpret passages right through our modern day context. So let's, let's step back and just kind of think about what the time was. Um, salt was valuable. 
for a variety of reasons, but one of the actual words in Latin was this idea of a monthly allowance, a monthly salary, salarium or salarium. This Latin root ultimately came over to the word French word salary and eventually made it into our English word, what we know, salary. You know, so salt had inherent value in that way. Um, and also the main source of salt in, of course, Judea, modern-day Israel, was the Dead Sea and the massive salt cliffs along this place called Jebel Ubsum. I probably mispronounced that. The face of this ridge is constantly interchanging as the weather would interact with the salt rock. So they would harvest it by chipping away at that. The other way, of course, salt would be harvested across the ancient world was taking salt water, pull, pulling it into vats or something like that, letting it sit in the sun and evaporate. And of course, what's get left behind is ultimately salt. Um, one of the places that Anna and I visited um, a couple years ago was the island of Bonaire down in the Caribbean. And it was a really cool experience because there has a very, very flat island, pretty salty water there, and then of course, high winds and lots of sun, very little cloud cover. It makes it a perfect part. Part of the tour that we went on the island was these vast, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of salt pits there on the island where they pump in salt water and then the sun just constantly beats down and there's almost always a very, very stiff breeze to carry away that evaporation and they would harvest salt. So that's the way the ancient world would do this. Um, and then also Second Chronicles 3.15 talks a little bit about this concept. Excuse me, 13.5. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? This idea that there's inherent value and worth in this. Leviticus 2.13 also had some interesting context. Um, you may not have remembered this part, but when they're talking about the grain offerings that would be brought, um, the command was, you shall season, this is to the nation of Israel, all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God, again, referring to something beyond the physical act, the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offerings. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Um, it's just interesting to, to consider the context there. And so when Jesus is speaking to the crowd here, coming out of context from where salt is referred to both in Jewish culture, but also the time and day of that age, that's a bigger picture, but drawing upon those influences. So let's take a look at this idea that salt is a preservative. You are the salt of the earth. Have you ever stopped and thought about, like, what does that mean? What's the context there? Of course, in the ancient world, there's no refrigeration. How many of you would bring home meat from the grocery store and just let it sit out on your counter for days before you ate it, right? That would probably not end well. Well, same thing happened back then, right? So salt was a method of preservation. You would salt the meat and it would dehydrate it. The water would come out of it. And then you could use that in other cooking and it wouldn't rot and spoil. So the same way the sinful world around us is in this state of decay, rotting. Salt acts to help preserve from an even, even deeper state of corruption. So there's this idea that Christians, by God's grace, can have a sanctifying influence, a small bit of preservation in the world. Um, if you study anthropology or look at the history of cultures around the world, where Christianity did not exist in any form versus there was some Christian influence. And you can quickly kind of see some parallels there that that lives out. Tim Keller, uh, one of my favorite authors and thinkers, he's the senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, has um, an interesting phrase on in how this works of how do you think about this idea of Christians to be salt in the culture, right? 
and he describes it as a city of countercultural for the common good. In other words, building upon what Bart has been talking about in the series of Ephesians, right? How are we as Christians to live out our lives with good works? Um, Tim Keller says one of the best ways to become countercultural is to be saltier. Now, you think about, well, okay, what does that mean? That doesn't mean like, you know, a bad attitude, but salty congregations, salty people, if we will, living in this life, are going to provide a foretaste of shalom, this idea of peace with God, notable for the vision, having a model in mind for change that we see in this broken world so that everything we do points to glimpse to the future that is yet to come. There's an interesting parallel passage. I want us to just flip over quickly to 2 Kings chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at this example here. Um, Christ does not make specific reference to it here, but again, an audience of Jewish people steeped in understanding of culture would have remembered this. 2 Kings chapter 2, look at verse 19 through 22 there. This is the prophet Elisha has come to the city of Jericho. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad. and The land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it, said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on. Neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. There's this city cursed by death. We're not going to go into that, of course. Um, but miraculously transformed through the working of God through his prophet Elisha here, taking God's salt into a city. This restored Jericho ultimately is part of this idea of pointing to a deeper truth, right? This foretaste of new Jerusalem, graced with the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and a lamb through the middle of the street of the city. That's from Revelation 22. So salt acts as a preservative by the way in which that we as Christians live in this world, pointing to deeper truths and helping to prevent a state of greater decay. Let's go back to Matthew 5 now and take a look at this next idea then. Salt as a seasoning or flavor enhancers. Christians, by this way, can be a picture of joy living in the midst of a sin-cursed world. Um, so we talked about this idea of meat drying and salt preservation. That's a way to preserve food so it doesn't rot, but it also is a, as much about taste, right? How many have ever eaten food without salt? And they're like, ugh, bland, boring. Um, last week during discussion group, I talked a little bit about my experience in survival training um, out in the woods of Washington State running around being chased, and part of that was learning how to survive so I was with a group of like four of us, and we started out with a rabbit and a chicken. And when we ate and cooked those, you know, we didn't have any salt with us. And it was extremely bland and boring, like no flavor whatsoever. Of course, one of the reasons why modern, you know, fast food and everything like that can get you to eat a lot of it is because they put so much salt in it. There's a balance here, right? But so this idea of joy, but also an idea of purity, of bringing something to it. The message paraphrase of this particular verse is really interesting. So it's one of the translations that takes it and just tries to put it into context here. It says, if you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? Compromise to sin in this world can have a devastating impact on our ability to be the witness to this world that we're meant to be. Um, now, 
We didn't uh, do it, get there just automatically. Remember last week, Bart talked through verse 11 and 12. This idea of persecution is coming. Not everybody is going to appreciate the way in which salt can be this preservative, this purity, this flavor enhancers, because it reminds them of their sin or their rebellion against God. So there's this um, back and forth, this tension here between Christian life being attractive to the world as a seasoning. People will look at us and see the ultimate peace and joy that we have. Notice the difference by the way that we live, the way we love, the way that we serve. Um, it's about living life in front of others, so it's not this public, or rather it is a public exercise, not a private one. We can be known for our courage and conviction, but understand that that may come with challenges, with persecution. Let's look at this idea then of salt as healing and sustenance. So we've seen it as purity and then as a seasoning flavor enhancer, now as healing or sustenance. Uh, Mark 9.50, you don't have to turn there, but it's the same idea, the same passage recorded from a different author's vantage point, said, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? And he added something else that was not here in Matthew. He said, have salt in yourselves. And then the frequent phrase, that part of that verse is, and be at peace with one another. So somehow in there, this is idea that in order to be the salt that God has called us to is having peace. Paul hints at this too in Colossians 4, 6, when he says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Somehow in that way, right, the way in which we talk, the way in which we interact with our brothers and sisters here in the church, our family, our friends, the broader culture, the broader world around us, is this idea salt represents something, our speech and our peace. So this idea of sea salt can be a natural antiseptic. So again, back to the ancient times, they don't have antibiotics, they don't have you know, creams and ointments like we would for wounds. One of the ways that they could help flush it out, clean it, would to be used salt water. It's also been used as an anti-inflammatory for a long, long time. Uh, you may have heard the expression, you know, throwing salt in the wound. Well, <laughs> there's a reason for that phrase. It comes from a context of, well, we've got to treat it with something. We haven't got much, so salt it is, right? Burns as part of that, ultimately drawing that water out to dry out the wound. Saline water, of course, we use that today, right? Anytime an IV is not, it's not pure water, there's a bit of salt in it. Electrolytes, of course, marketed to us in a billion when one sports drinks, right? These are things that are essential for life. Actually, I got to experience this a little bit differently because one of the things, medical conditions that Sarah had back um, leading up to her health issues was she wasn't, body wasn't able to regulate her own salt. So she actually had to put salt in her water every day and drink it in order to maintain that because her body was not keeping enough balance. So if you don't have enough sodium, it can actually lead to things like kidney failure and death even. So salt is a ability to provide support to life. So if salt has lost its taste, how will people taste godliness? Now, this is not a passage to draw from, say, you could lose your salvation or something like this. Rather, I believe Jesus is saying you could lose your effectiveness. Back to that idea of dead sea salt. Okay, so part of the idea was you'd harvest it from the cliffs and it naturally be contaminated with other minerals like gypsum in particular and it would be so diluted 
by the other things in there, it was not pure salt, and you would taste it and it would be flat. There would be nothing. And you'd try to preserve meat with it or use it for another effect to that, it would be worthless. That's the idea. So the idea of throwing it under feet, oftentimes the only use for that kind of diluted salt with minerals was to scatter it around on footpaths to keep them free from weeds. So the salt is lost in its effectiveness because it is so contaminated, it's so filled with other things like other minerals, we cannot use it for its primary purpose of preservation and flavoring. We're going to throw it out. We can be like that as Christians if we're not careful. If we become contaminated, if our lives become um, sullied by the impurities of this world, we can lose our effectiveness. So we're not just looking at salt, though. We're also to be light. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Again, another declarative statement here. Now, this was such an interesting passage here. I had to cut myself off in looking at some of the parallels from Scripture, thinking about idea of light versus darkness. We'll take a look at a few of them here. But again, Jesus is building upon a rich heritage of biblical literature um, going back. But when we think about this idea of who we are in Christ to be this light of the world, Ephesians 5.8 says, For you at one time were darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We are not the source of it, right? We're the reflection of Christ as the ultimate light. Paul wrote in Philippians 2.15 that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And of course, Jesus later on in the book of John 8.12 said, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have light of life. A profound contrast that we'll see paralleled here. Followers of Christ, we reflect his ultimate light in a dark and dying world. Light is ultimately referenced more than 200 times in Scripture, going back, of course, to creation. God created light and then separated it from the darkness. Um, He gave us earthly lights, the sun, moon, and stars, as a small picture, a small glimpse of His ultimate light. Uh, There was the light example of the pillar of fire leading the nation of Israel in the wilderness, represented His presence in the nighttime. When Moses went up to speak with God and ultimately came back with the Ten Commandments and the laws, his face, you recall, shone, literally reflected the glory of God. And the people were so scared of it that they said, Moses, we can't look at you. Please cover your face. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 43.3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. And of course, Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. These parallels would have definitely been apparent to Jesus' audience there. And of course, taking a look at God as the source of light in prophecies and things like that. Daniel 2.22 says, he reveals deep and hidden things. Speaking of God, he knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. 
And then Christ now representing, of course, the ultimate fulfillment of prophecies. Isaiah 9-2, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. In Isaiah 49-6, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved tribes of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach back to the ends of the earth. And then finally, John 1, 1, 1 through 5, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There's so much when you think about this idea of light that goes even beyond this great passage here of even thinking back to Ephesians that we just finished having gone through what the church is, this new temple, this new picture of God's relationship with man. Ephesians 3.9, to bring light for everyone what is in the plan of mystery, hidden for ages of things in God. Ephesians 5.8.9, you were one time darkness, now you are light in the Lord, walk as children of light, and then Ephesians 5, 13 and 14. Anything exposed to the light, it becomes visible. Light cannot be hidden. Or if you try, it's counterproductive, right? Jesus says that here in this passage. You don't light a lamp and then cover it up with a, a bowl, a basket, right? Especially in a day and age, there's no electricity. Like that one candle has to light a lot, or that lamp has to light a lot. You can imagine him saying that and Every kind of chuckling. Well, of course not. That's silly. Why would you light a lamp and then stick it under a bushel or a basket? A beacon is what we are to be, piercing through every cloud of darkness all over the entire world. This idea of a city set on a hill is that same parallel passage. Again, imagine especially like a moonless night walking in the countryside. There's no electricity. There's no lights. And you look up on a city on a hill, Jerusalem, of course, being a prominent city that sat on top of a hill. And from a long distance away, you could see the collective light of all the campfires, the torches along the walls and outside, people carrying on. And you would see it for a long distance away. There's no light pollution. There's nothing else to come in. And this lampstand idea, again, giving light to the whole house. This is all about displaying the goodness, the greatness, the glory of God. The light here can serve two purposes, though, right? Both attracts, says there's safety here, come in out of the darkness. We just saw those passages about the contrast between light and darkness, representing, you know, in many ways, good and evil. But it also gives warning direction. Think of that lighthouse on the coast saying, if you come closer, there are rocks. <laughs> you shall crash. When I think about light in darkness, I think back to a specific memory I had as a young kid. Um, my family went to go visit Mammoth Cave. It's up in Kentucky. I don't know if any of you have ever been there before. Really fun place to visit. One of the largest caverns in the United States and the world. It's, it's up there. I remember at one point we were all down deep inside one of the larger caverns in there, you know, probably more than 100 feet tall, hundreds of feet wide, very, very big. You fit more than one football field in there. 
and the ranger gathered us all together in the center of the room. And then he said, all right, hold tight, your kids, you know, I'm going to turn out the lights. And he pushed the switch and suddenly you're plunged into utter, utter darkness, like hand in front of the face, cannot see it. And he let you sit there for like 30 seconds and you start to feel the darkness descending upon you. Now, fortunately, I was not claustrophobic or anything like that, but as a little kid, you know, it's pretty impressionable. And then he stands up on a post or something like that, a step stool, and he lights a single match and he holds it up. It's one tiny match. And suddenly you look around and you can see all the faces of everyone there. You can see up to the ceiling and out to the edge because one small little match. And you realize, wow, in a place of utter darkness, one tiny small little light can make all the difference in the world. The darker the world around us becomes, the brighter our light, however small you may feel it is, can be. <clears throat> in Philemon 6, Paul wrote here uh, this idea of light. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. 1 Peter 2.12 continues on with that same idea. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Because why are we to shine our light in this passage? Right, Verse 16, In this same way, let your light shine before others, so that may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. David Brainerd, um, one of the early missionaries in American history, was working up in the Boston area long before, um, this is in the late 1600s and things like that. Um, he ultimately died at a very young age, only 29, ministering among some of the Native American tribes there, actually not far away from where the church was at that we came from in Boston, in Nonantum. He wrote this, Here am I, Lord, send me. Send me to the ends of the earth. Send me to the rough, the savage pagans of the wilderness. Send me from all that is called comfort on earth. Send me even to death itself, if it be but in thy service, and to promote thy kingdom. Sometimes it can be easy for us to sometimes forget about what this idea of light in a dark place, in a dark culture, can look like. Um, Spending time reading in the biographies of missionaries can help us be refreshed or reminded of that same vision. Um, I think of people like Amy Carmichael or Adoniram Judson, Hudson Taylor, William Carey, Mary Slessor, people who took the light of the gospel into very, very dark places and suffered the persecution in many ways that we, Jesus talked about in verse 11 and 12. But yet, it doesn't take much for us to look around and see the dark the dying culture, the lost world here in 2022 Sarasota as well. John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. When people look around and see our light, see our good works, the glory to the Father can be given. Paul wrote also in 2 Corinthians 9, 13, By their approval of this service, 
or this being a light, a testimony in the culture, they, the Gentiles, will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ, the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. So the question then becomes today, what is keeping us from shining our light? Could it be fear of man? Pride. Our own sin. The comfort of this world, like what David Brainerd said, you know, send me far away from that. Sometimes the peer pressure we may face, parental expectations, work culture, our personal ambitions or agenda. I find it so interesting as we think about this concept of doing good works, having, bar having talked about this emphasis, only f coming from Ephesians now to this. What are we known for in the culture? What are you known for? If I were to go and poll people in your life who are not believers, what would they say about you? Would being a, this idea of a light and salt be one of the things that they could say? Oh, yeah. And if not, what do you think could be that gap? This is a public exercise of part of our life. Salt, in order to be effective in its role, or light in its effective, can't be hidden. It has to be used going forth. By God's grace, though, this is something that we can do. Again, you are not dependent upon your strength, your courage, your words of power. So the question and challenge that we, I want us to leave as we go forth from here is, how can we live this out? How can we be salt of the earth and light of the world? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today and the opportunity to look at your word, the truth that is in it. Convict us, encourage us, strengthen us with your truth. We ask these things then in Jesus' name, amen.